The story of Yosef and Arparsha is really the onset story of Gullus. Yosef is sold as a slave down to Mitzrayim, which precipitates the exile of the entire Kal Yisrael to Mitzrayim. Well, much as this is a story of Gullus, spliced within the story is a different story, which is so clearly a story of Geula. And that is the story of Yehuda. Yehuda is approached, is seduced by a harlot, by a Zona, who is actually his daughter in Tamar in disguise. And they conceive a child together. And that child, Parat's father's Malchus based of the Davidic dynasty, which descends from Yehuda and ultimately Melech Mashiach, the King Mashiach. It is so clear, the master technique of the divine author here in Parshas Vayeshev, weaving the story of Geula, the birth of the Mashiach via Yehuda, into the greater Golisaka of Yosef. It is by master design, really attempting to find the hope of Geula within the doom of Golis. As the Medrash comments here, before the onset of this first Golis, the Golis Mitzrayim, the story of Yosef, well, the seed of the final Redeemer, the Mashiach, has already been set here in this message of hope. Seen this way, the story of Yehuda and Tamar conceiving this child ought to be studied, ought to be mined for all it contains in terms of the great secret of Gullus Geula latent inside of it, the hope amidst gloom, the promise of salvation within suffering. There are some some deeper secret here in terms of how the Golachron, how the final Redeemer here is birthed within the otherwise hopeless story of Gullus. So let's dig right in. It is quite shocking what Tamar is doing here. Tamar is approaching her father-in-law and seducing him, and she is doing it based on the premise of Yibam, leverage relationship, that when a person dies without children, while well, the wife of the deceased at times is to marry the brother of the deceased, and in rare instances, such as this one, other relatives, in this case Yehuda. Yehuda is the father of her own husband heir who has died. So clearly, Yibam is oh so significant a mitzvah, and particularly oh so significant to Geula that it justifies such scandalous methods as Tamar engages in. So there's some nexus here between Yibam and Geula, something which justifies these desperate measures of Tamar. And when we engage now in a broader search, pulling out our magnifying glass and looking for clues, we find other instances of this mitzvah of Yibam creeping up all over the place 
in the story of Malchus based of the birth of the Mashiach, the birth of the Davidic dynasty. Aside from this one, for example, later in Megillus Rus, we have another Yipim story. When Boaz, the descendant of Yehuda, as a relative of Machlon, who is deceased, engages in Yipim with the, with the wife, Rus. And it's a very similar story, almost a sister story, because there too, Rus the wife, steps forward, takes the first step. The overture step is on his on her part. When she creeps up on him in the middle of the night in their encounter, in an equally scandalous or almost equally scandalous fashion. And there's a third example of Yibum in this family history. And that is on Rus's side of the family, in terms of Rus as a descendant of Moab. Well, she is born from the incestuous relationship, she descends from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. The basic story there was, back in Parshas Vayera, after Lot and environs have been destroyed, there's death all over the place, and Lot's daughters believe there is no hope for survival. So they engage in desperate measures of their own to produce children, and they creep up on their father in the middle of the night. And it is so clearly a parallel story. Again, a misdeath, a misdestruction. You have women stepping forward to do to engage in behaviors that they would have certainly never engaged in other contexts, all for the purpose of producing a child. So this is yet another Yibum-esque story in the development of the same family, Malchus based of it. And I would note yet a final example of Yibam, or at least the concept of Yibam, in relationship to Malchus based of it and Mashiach. And that is minus the scandal and minus the incest, but simply the notion of producing a child to replace the deceased appears early in Chumash. Immediately in Parshas Bracious, after Cain kills Hevel, so Hevel is dead, well, when another child is born to Adam and Chava, he is named Shase. Kishas Lielukim Zera Acher Tachas Hevel. He's called Shase to mean he has been placed, he has come to be, to replace Hevel who has been killed. He is a replacement child, which is really what Yibam is about, replacing the deceased. Why is that birth of Shase, which I'm going to call conceptual Yibam, much as the child is conceived by parents, but in other words, it is a conception to replace someone who died, in this case, Hevel, in a conceptual Yibam. Why do I call that, why do I link that to Malchus Mashiach, Malchus based off it, because if you look in the Medrash on that Pasuk and Bereshus, Kishasli Elokim Zarachar Tachas Kayin, the Medrash links Shais as some sort of foreshadowing hope for Zem Mashiach. So here we have traced multiple Yibum stories in the birth of the Mashiach, from Yehuda to Boaz and Rus to Lod and his daughters, and finally the birth of Shais which is conceptually linked to the Mashiach. And the question is, rewarding 
as this pattern is, as the consistency of this pattern is, revealing as it is, finding again and again Yibam in the birth of Malchus Mashiach and redemption. What is its conceptual significance? Why is Yibam integrally connected to this family and this story? Because I would suggest as follows. Generally, when a person dies, tragic as it is, they, the deceased, and certainly those who they leave behind, find solace in the children, in the fact that there's an enduring memory, in the fact that there is still a living being here on earth who is inspired by the neshama of the deceased and thereby connects the neshama of the deceased back to earth. However, when someone dies without children, it is truly tragic. There is no continuity. It is that tragedy that we call the dead-end tragedy. In this vein, you might recall, decades ago, street, the, the way street signs would connote a street with, which was not a through street. It used to say dead-end. They took down those signs. I've not seen them in years. Now, in our politically correct society, the signs say no outlet rather than dead-end. Because dead-end connotes something very morbid viscerally within us. Dead end? That's really an end? Well, dead end is a horrible thing. Someone dies without children. So the Torah creates this mitzvah called Yibam, which says when all hope seems lost, when it seems like dead end, somehow, some way, using out-of-the-box means, and even a relationship that would otherwise be incest, the Torah ensures that the memory of the deceased will continue. The Torah redeems and finds a way forward, resurrects the memory of the deceased using, what, using a circuitous method to find hope amidst hopelessness. And this is why Yibam is so powerful an icon in the story of Mashiach, in the story of Geula. For this Mashiach, for this Redeemer, to embody the hope of a people, a people who've lost all hope over the course of the Gulls. A people who seem like they're in dead end, the dead end position, in the abyss of doom and gloom and hopelessness. Well, he in his very DNA, born from repetitive yibums, embodies the notion there is no dead end. Hashem ensures when all promise, when all dreams, when all hope seems lost, Somehow, by hook or by crook, this is going to happen here. And therefore, I suggest returning to our story, particularly, the Yibam and the Yehuda story actually represents Yehuda's own personal condition. Yehuda's entire circumstances here in the Parshas Vayeshev story. Vayer Yehuda me'esachav. He went down from his brothers. He's been demoted from his position of authority. The brothers blame him for the sale of Yosef, as Rashi explains. And... Whatever children Yehuda leaves behind, or most of the children Yehuda leaves behind, seem to be dying out. Er dies, his son, Onan, his son, dies, and with them the promise of Yehuda's kingdom seems to die out. <laughs> and then Yehuda is caught, ensnared, in a great moral failing. So here we have failure after failure, hopelessness after hopelessness. But unbeknownst to Yehuda, when he's literally in the abyss, in this great moral failing with Tamar, seduced by Tamar, which is, the, which is the wantum cherry on top of all his previous sufferings. Unbeknownst to him, 
the seed of his future, the seed of Gaula is being sowed. This is what Yibam so represents in this story. This is what the Yehuda story is all about. This is what Gaula is all about. Now, expanding the thread from the Yehuda story of Gaula to the larger Yosef story in which it is inlaid, the larger story in our parsha of Yosef's Gaulus in which it is inlaid, I would suggest the Torah is really telling us that even amidst the dreary gloominess of Gaulus Mitzrayim and Yosef's own personal circumstance, there is also the hope of Ebon. There is also this hope, this promise, that when it seems most impossible, that there's a path forward. Well, just hold on tight with your Amuna. In the most unlikely places, Hashem will find out-of-the-box methods and mechanisms as borne out equally in the Yosef story. Here, Yosef has, number one, been sold into a slave, as a slave. And then all the more so is framed by Petitfar's wife as a criminal. And he's languishing in prison. So now all his dreams of rise to glory seem so impossible, so elusive. But yet it is due to and amidst these very conditions that his dream will be fulfilled. Because it is, in course, it is in course, as a convicted criminal in prison, that he meets the Sarhamashkin, the butler, who will in turn serve as his liaison to Pyro to ensure that Yosef becomes the viceroy. So you might say that Yosef and all of our Gala stories have conceptual Yibam in them. The great message of Yibam, there is no dead end. Hope will somehow surface, not despite the abysmal situations, but actually somehow within the abysmal situations. And a final splendid clue is a Yibam connection which I was able to find in the Yosef story itself. And that is an hour half Torah here in Parshish Vayeshev. The Haftorah records what Yosef's brothers did with the money they earned after they sold him as a slave. Al-Mechram Bekasef Tzadik Ve'evyun Vavor Na'alayim They sold him for a bunch of shoes. Now, it seems so petty to note, to record in an eternal Tanakh what they used the money for. A bunch of shoes. And particularly petty considering the epic nature of this story. I really care about the shoes and the images connoted by this Pusik. And was it rock ports or was it hush puppies? There must be some symbolism to the fact they use the money for shoes. Well, now we understand from our Yibam perspective. Because, of course, Yibam is a symbol. Shoes, I apologize, are a symbol of Yibam. As evidenced in the Torah, if the brother of the deceased refuses to do Yibam, there is a ceremony called Chalitza in which the widow of the deceased takes off the brother's shoe and thereby lays his foot bare. That somehow the shoe covering the foot represents Yibam. Let's tease this out for a minute and thereby complete, conclude our presentation. Why shoes represent Yibam, all it has to do with the Yosef story and the greater message of our parasha of never losing hope even in abysmal situations. Kabbalah explains or analogizes the neshama to a foot 
and the goof of the body to a shoe. I want to explain that symbolism. Just as a foot must tread the earth, but it struggles to tread the earth directly. The earth is hard, the earth is harsh. It will bruise. It will lay calluses within the tender flesh of the foot. So it needs a shoe to buffer it. The foot needs a shoe to buffer it as it steps upon the earth. Well, likewise, the neshama, which is tender, spiritual, regal, dignified, godly, must tread on the earth, must come down to Olam Hazah, a very harsh place for the neshama. And it too needs a buffer so it won't get bruised up, calloused up by everything it must see and experience down here. And that is the goof, that is the body which buffers the neshama so the neshama can walk and advance here on earth much as a ship. So, so long as a person, a soul has a body, it has that buffer. And even when they die, the neshama has some sort of goof here on earth for it to, to allow it to, to interact here on earth via its descendants. However, when a person dies without children, the foot has been laid bare, so to speak. The neshama no longer has a goof, no longer has a body to enable its interaction here on earth. And this is why in the chalitza ceremony, the widow of the deceased removes the brother's show if he refuses to do Yibam and says, that's your brother's soul. Look at your bare foot. That is your brother's soul. You are not enabling it to have perpetuation. And for this reason, you will find this, the motif of shoes versus bare feet figuring throughout the Yibam story of Miguel Asros from the object Boaz uses to gain the privilege to do Yibam with Rus, which is a shoe, a now to the act of Rus when she creeps up on Boaz in the middle of the night of Megillus Rus, and she lays his feet bare, symbolizing to him, your bare feet, Boaz. That is Machlon's soul, which is bare now without a body, without a shoe. So this seems to be a resonant motif. The shoe represents Yibo, finding a shoe for the bare foot, finding a body for the dis- in which the deceased soul can live on. And the way we have expanded the Yiba message tonight, beyond the perpetuation of an individual soul of a deceased, it is really the Geula story. It is the spirit of the Jewish people, which can seem bereft, can seem to ha- have been laid bare when its physical conditions are deplorable. It does not have a goodness body. It does not have an honorable body, honorable condition, in which it seems like all hope is lost. Yosef, the first of the Jews to descend to Gaulus Mitzrayim, is experiencing this. But yet he was sold for a bunch of shoes. He was sold for the icon of Yibam. And though the people in the story don't realize it, the brothers think they are just purchasing a pair of shoes. Well, unbeknownst to them, from the from in ret- retrospectively, the eternal Tanakh is hinting to us: these shoes actually capture what's truly going on here. Unbeknownst to Yosef's brothers who hate him, there is a evil going on here conceptually, 
as will be further brought out and more explicitly brought out in the story of Yehud, the Geula story inlaid in the parsha, that amidst all the gloomy conditions, whether a Yosef's gloomy conditions or Yehuda's gloomy conditions, they will rise to glory. They will rise to Geula amidst all of this. They will find salvation not despite their suffering, but due to the suffering. Deliverance not despite their distress, but amidst the distress, the distress will itself serve as the catalyst for Geula. May we all merit to see in our lifetimes this promise that when we hold on tight, hold on tight to Amun as we all need to, as we face and experience the vicissitudes of life, that we will see Geula not simply in spite of the vicissitudes, but due to the vicissitudes. How everything we encounter is really some greater catalyst for personal, personal Geula, personal redemption.